Welcome to this episode of The Beat, the companion series to Policed in Ireland, where we look at news, events and research related to policing in Ireland. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Clifford Stott, Professor of Social Psychology at Keele University and Director of the Keele Policing Academic Collaboration. In light of events in Dublin this weekend, we're going to talk a bit about what psychology can tell us about the policing of crowds. So thanks so much for joining me, Clifford. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think... Part of the approach this weekend seems to have been that a crowd is dangerous, not just from a COVID perspective, but from a public order perspective, like that it automatically poses a public order risk. Um, And everyone's probably heard of the idea of a mob mentality. Um, Is that actually a real thing? Is it a justified position to take? Um, well, it, is it a real thing? Um, no. <laughs> uh, but is the perception that crowds are like that a real thing? Yes. Um, and I think that's one of the dominant uh, issues that we have to confront in crowd psychology is to disabuse people of their misunderstandings about how and why crowds behave like they do. And you find that after every sort of major incident involving disturbances and crowds, that newspaper headlines regularly roll out the words mob. Um, the, the narratives revolve more about moral condemnation than they do about explanation. And they often recapitulate these very outdated ideas about the inherent irrationality of crowds, the mob psychology. Um, that's a product of 19th century crowd theory, but has been debunked and replaced in, in scientific understanding for decades now. But we still constantly struggle to try to um, get popular representations, popular discourses to move on from these outdated uh, models of, of crowd psychology. And and how have they been proven to be outdated? So what is flawed about that approach well the 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 most the the simplest way to understand it is that they don't explain anything when you look at crowd events what people do in crowds is very specific that it might seem irrational and meaningless and random uh, from an outsider's point of view but when you look at them in detail what you find is that there are very structured targets, for example. You know, in riots, people tend to, for example, attack police or they attack um, shops owned by particular communities or things like this. There are very, very specific types of action that people engage in in crowd events. But mob theory, mob psychology, uh, presupposes that crowd psychology is irrational, that people lose meaning and therefore that their behaviour should be random and it should be inherently destructive and inherently antisocial. But quite clearly that's not the case. Firstly, crowds' actions are very targeted, but secondly and, and most obviously not all crowds are violent. So how is it that even if you're going to assume that crowds are inherently violent, you still need to explain why it is that some crowds are violent and some other aren't. So as a theory, it doesn't actually help us to explain anything. It doesn't help us to explain what crowds are going to do. It doesn't help us to predict when they're going to become problematic. And it doesn't help us to understand what they're going to do once they do become problematic. So as a body of theory, it is quite frankly, literally useless. And that's why we reject it. But 
Um, it's actually quite what we call ideologically functional because mm. in the sense that if you can dismiss crowds as irrational, you can also argue that what provokes that violence is nothing to do with the state or with policing or with government policy. You can render it mindless and therefore dismiss any relevance that that conflict has in terms of its political significance. Okay. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And I suppose coming from that, you've developed a concept with your colleagues, um, Riker and Drury, I hope I'm pronouncing those right, um, called the Elaborated Social Identity Model. Um, can you explain to us what that is and how it works? Yeah, it's not the most catchy title, is it? <laughs> um, but basically, it's, a, a, it's the outcome of, of decades of theoretical development embedded pr- primarily in social psychology. Um, that has helped us to replace this outdated mob psychology with a different understanding of what motivates and enables collective action in crowd events. And in particular, uh, the study uh, focuses on why peaceful crowds become violent. And there are certain things our theory does, um, and without going into technical detail, uh, that are different from the mob psychology approach. Uh, The first of those is that we accept that crowd action is meaningful for people involved in it. So it's not like they lose their consciousness or lose their mind or their rationality. It's just that the basis of rationality changes. And it changes from uh, a sense of ourselves as an individual to a sense of ourselves as part of a wider group, what we call a social identity. And that social identity is really important to understand why people behave like they do in crowds, because it is the psychological basis for it. The the second thing our work does is it uh, contextualizes that group psychology, and it recognizes that the way people define themselves in a crowd is very dependent on the surrounding social context. So, for example, if people are protesting against the piece of legislation, the water bill, uh, you know, changes things. That's government policy. And it's the context that forms the identity around which people and through which people mobilize. Mm. But what we also recognize is not just to do with big structural issues, you know, high levels of unemployment, government policy, inequality, racism, stuff like that. It's also about what we call the proximal or micro sociological context, the interactions that occur during a crowd event. So, for example, if you've got a um, demonstration by a far right group, you often get a demonstration, a counter demonstration uh, for mobilized against that fascist demonstration. Now, the way those two groups interact during that event has a profound implication for whether or not that becomes conflictual and violent. But always in the mix around these crowd events is is sometimes what we might call a hidden actor, and that's the police. And what what we know from our research is that the police have a really important role to play in shaping that immediate proximal context and often that the way that the police police a crowd has a big impact on how people in the crowd define themselves in effect that the policing shapes the identity through which collective action becomes possible 
So it becomes impossible to extract out policing from understanding how and why crowds behave like they do. So, and like, I don't want to, you know, like I wasn't there at the weekend, you know, I haven't seen directly what happened, but just like applying that to the kind of scenario. So you have like, and they are young people. The, the videos all suggest maybe late, tw- late teens, early twenties. Um, so they come in with friends and they're like, oh, we're going to go out and they turn up in their groups of friends. And then it becomes this huge thing. And there were very large crowds. Um, well, hundreds um uh, and suddenly th- then they're they're part of that group and that changes their social identity and then d- is it that they start to recognize oh we're all of this group that has let's say been struggling so much during covid you know we haven't been able to go out we unemployment levels in ireland for that age group are exceptionally high um they haven't been able to go to university they um and they're going to be the last to get the vaccine and so there there is a collective mindset to that and then what happens on the street and how the police engage with them kind of reinforces that mindset or or confirms the kind of collective social identity yeah well i mean you touch on on lots of issues there yeah but that should remind us straight away that one of the most important things that we need to do in trying to analyze why crowds behave like they do is recognize their complexity and that's that's part of the problem here because what you will invariably get and i'm sure that there will be commentaries underneath this podcast going oh shut him up he's a, you know these kids need a hard rod and be firm with them you know it's all about moral condemnation blah 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 well let's just push that aside and let the ranters get on with the ranting and start looking in detail at the complexity to understand how we can manage these crowd events in the best way that produces the best outcome now, where we recognise that this forms of collective action are driven by what we call social identity and that there are important interactional and contextual dynamics that shape that identity, we can start to ask powerful questions about underlying cause. And this is particularly challenging in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, as you, as you highlight. Now, recognise that we talked about what we call structural context, you know, this big thing. And that's the thing that you're talking about here, where young people in the COVID-19 pandemic, to put it simply, are suffering the most, um, are gaining the least. In the sense that, you know, their education is being denied, their employment opportunities are being denied, their capacity to socialisation, socialise is, be, is being denied. And, and yet they are at the lowest risk. Um, across all of this. So they're kind of paying this really heavy price for, for very little kind of gain in a sense. You know, all of their rights are being taken away uh, to protect other people. Uh, and they themselves are not being necessarily recognised for that. So there's a structural issue at work here. Now, one of the things that we know about how this context impacts is through what we call perceptions of legitimacy. So one of the things that we know about how crowds come to behave like they do is that the identities that drive collective action define their relationship to others in terms of illegitimacy. So it's not simply that this is happening to young people. It's that it creates a sense in what's happening to them is unfair and illegitimate. So that we know that's one of the things that factors into a riot. The second dynamic that we know factors in is what we call power 
or empowerment, right? So what we see here is you've got a situation where young people who may or may not feel that they've been unfairly treated come into the city centre in the context of the COVID pandemic, where they're being promised an opportunity to be able to socialise and, you know, get some reward for what it is they've given to Irish society. And then in that context, they recognise that they're not alone, that there's hundreds of them. There's hundreds of people around like me who are here to celebrate. And then they're trying to celebrate. And then suddenly the police rock up. Now, in that context of already perceived unfairness, there is a very real danger that if the police rock up and say to them, look, we're not having this, move on, that that's going to amplify a shared perception of illegitimacy among young people present in that location. But because they're all present in that location at the same time and feel the same way, they start to recognise a level of unity among themselves. And there is truth in that cliche, unity is power. So what we see is not only a perception of shared illegitimacy, but a perception of shared empowerment. And those two things together, bang, there it goes. That is almost always present when we see a riot. And I would suggest that it may well have been present in Dublin um, uh, over the weekend. Yeah, I, my only caveat there is I'm cautious. I, I There's limited evidence of a riot, but um, although we could talk about what a riot even is. Yeah, level, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's also an important point to make. I, I think what we, what we, you know, it's a, it's a clumsy term for me to use and I shouldn't have used it. What, what, we, what we try to do is to focus on change. Yeah. The change from peaceful norms into what we might call conflictual norms, resistance. Uh, refusal to cooperate, um, you know, verbal aggression doesn't necessarily have to become violent. So in that situation, and you've really, that's a really powerful description of how potentially volatile that is with that sense of illegitimacy and empowerment at play at the same time. Then the police, as you say, rock up. How could... What different actions from the police affect the crowd differently? Like, how does that come into play? Okay, well, that, that, therein lies the million-dollar question, really. Um, I, I think that one of the immediate clarifications that we need to bring to bear here is that so many people interpret those initial arguments as another liberal academic attack in the police. Oh, here we go again, you know, blaming the police. It's not a question of that. It's a question of understanding how these dynamics work Mm -hmm. so that we can work with the police to incorporate these theoretical perspectives into how they think about managing crowds strategically and tactically. And, you know, across the the world, we've got a track record in helping the police to police crowds better. So what is it that we normally do when we do the work with the police to help them to understand how these theories can be operationalized? And the answer to that question is dialogue. Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. And what we see in place in most countries is an overwhelming reliance in their public order tactics on use of force. It's all about use of force large officers deployed into streets to move crowds as a whole from that location, either with the threat of or the actual use of force. And that is sometimes necessary. 
And it is an integral component of what democratic public order policing should be about. Let's bear in mind here, there was no weaponry use, there was no gas, there was no water cannon, uh, which you do see in other countries. So, you know, there, there, there's a framework of different tactical options. But what is invariantly missing are specialist dialogue officers who have a good skill set and have been invested in to build the kinds of relations and social capital that um, allows them to de-escalate situations in ways that are more effective at managing these dynamics of legitimacy. Now, bear in mind here that what, <clears throat> what we're talking about is managing those dynamics of legitimacy. And in most um, accounts I've read so far of what happened at the weekend, what you see in those narratives are people who were present who were doing nothing wrong. They were just drinking or in that location who get caught up in the policing exercise. Now, that does suggest it was relatively indiscriminate once the intervention came. So it's about helping the police to avoid that as far as they possibly can by taking a more dialogue-led approach such that if an intervention using force is necessary, it's much more accurately targeted. So those people who are sitting around not doing anything wrong, just happily enjoying the promise of freedom in the COVID situation and having a drink, see the intervention and they think, well, that's fair enough. That guy was completely out of order. I mean, what was he doing? He shouldn't have been doing that. Mm. And, and, and that use of force then is seen as legitimate by lots of people around in that circumstance. And therefore, you're less likely to inadvertently ignite the dynamic of an escalation, which relies on lots of people in that vicinity thinking, no, that's out of order. What's he, what are those police doing? That's wrong. Now, whether they're right or wrong is irrelevant. What matters is that psychology is present in that location at that time as a function or an outcome of police intervention. And that's what have to match. The difficulty is a lot of police don't understand that because too often police are still being educated in mob psychology and it's wrong. And they don't have the opportunity to think differently about what they do because there hasn't been institutional investment in the background knowledge or indeed in the tactical capability itself. So these dialogue officers are really good at getting in there to manage those crowds in ways that improve the police's capacity for targeted and differentiated use of force. They also uh, operate to de-escalate situations. So what you tend to find, for example, is that you've got a large crowd of people, say 100, 150 people, who start to behave in ways that are likely to provoke the need for a police intervention. But it begins often just with a few people doing it. Now, if you've got police who are kind of there and almost like have a relationship of some sorts with people in that situation, they often can intervene early and say, come on, look, hang, let's keep a lid on this and set a limit for everybody present that that's as far as it goes. You might want to celebrate. You might want to be a bit boisterous. We'll let you do that. But there's a limit here. Step across that line. You're going to get nicked. And again, by limit setting early in the cycle, it helps people to understand what's legitimate and what isn't. So if you've been warned and told and everybody's accepted this line of legitimacy and then some somebody steps over it, 
and get arrested, again, it's sort of, well, it's fair enough, you know, it wasn't as if he wasn't warned, blah, 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 blah. Now, it's not a panacea, but it is a way in which you can help to de-escalate situations, solve problems early, set limits that function in the end to avoid the type of tactical intervention that, that we saw at work in, in Dublin on Saturday. And is that feasible even when, like, because I suppose when you talk about dialogue, like, and this is probably my um, poor knowledge, but I think of like, you know, with a protest, you can talk to the protest leaders or, you know, that there might be identifiable people you can talk to. But in a in a dynamic crowd situation, is that kind of relationship building still feasible? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the skill. That's the issue, you see. So it's not like an organized leadership. It's a situationally defined leadership. And in order to engage with it, you need to understand it. You need to be able to read crowds. You need to be able to read situations, identify early on. Oh, that guy, that person there, they, they're being really quite influential. That, that's, the per- that's the person I need to build a relationship with now. And I'm going to build a relationship with all of the individuals I can see around me who I think are, are who we think are going to be influential. And then when it starts to ramp up, you can draw on those relationships to help those influential people de-escalate. And quite often that's the case. And, you know, let's be clear, whatever the scepticism my argument is rendering here, we've done this with England fans. Mm. Right? If you can do it with England fans, you can do it with anybody. We're talking about a group of kids in Dublin city centre. We've done it with mobs of hooligans in, in Portugal during a whole European championship where none of them rioted, where every tournament up to that point There'd been major riots. So we know it works. We even, know those relationships can be built. Even with crowds that are potentially quite violent, which it doesn't yeah. seem to be in the case in Dublin. Not just crowds that are, are, are potentially violent, people, people who define themselves as hooligans. You can build these relationships. That's, yeah, that's really, really powerful. Um, and is there anything else? Sorry, I'm struggling on a question now. (laughs) I am like, it's it's just so powerful to think like, yeah, that just a little bit of understanding and psychology and relationship building and, you know, which is something that actually like the guards pride themselves on that, like compared to a lot of police forces, you know, in the main, they would say that they have really good skills at building relationships with communities. They're very, you know, all of the surveys say they're much more respected in generally in general confidence. And that sense of police legitimacy is relatively high in Ireland. So it should be a good starting point for them to be able to engage well i i think you know we we need to to be careful here and recognize that that probably is the case you know that ireland does enjoy one of the most well-respected police forces in europe mm-hmm. if not the world and, and that um sort of fundamental component of democracy has to be something that is cherished but it is cherished precisely because it extends itself into the arena of crowd management because the moment that stops is the moment you start to ebb towards militarization. Mm. And and that's, in a sense, what what happened in England in 2009 when a newspaper seller who was being um, um, 
he was assaulted by a police officer on his way home from work because they were dispersing a crowd that was protesting around the G20 summit and he died. And a subsequent inquiry um, in England and Wales in, uh, um, was called Adapting to Protest, Nurturing the British Model of Policing. And what, why they call it that is because what they're referring to is policing through consent and how in the UK we were, we were ebbing away from that through our public order policing, mm. which was incre- increasingly becoming paramilitarised. And, and there had to be some kind of reversal here. And I think, I think what, you know, what, what, what we need to recognize is that at some level, um, that, that, that broke down over the weekend. It is, and it reflects a breakdown of that. Mm. We shouldn't be surprised in that breakdown, given what the pandemic has done to societies, given the difficulties that society is faced with at the moment. We shouldn't be surprised by incidents that occurred in Dublin. As, as I said in our uh, discussion prior, prior to the podcast, what happened in Dublin is what we as uh, people involved in advising the UK government have been um, uh, anticipating. Uh, personally, I'm just surprised it hasn't happened in England yet. Mm. But this kind of dynamic is inevitably going to start happening um, and we shouldn't be surprised about it, precisely because of the the, the complex array of issues at work here. Um, Firstly, um, you know, at some level, the, the policing of this event isn't just about public order. It's about public health. Mm. Um, and and um, um, despite the relaxation, the pandemic is still with us, and that affects how the police, how society thinks about public assembly, people gathering together becomes dangerous, not because of public order issues, but because of contagion and the spread of the virus. So we start to police public assemblies, uh, but we do it from a public order mentality and we use public order tactics mm. to try to manage it that are designed to to deal with crowds in relationship to public order issues. But you're not policing it because of public order issues. You're policing it because of public health issues. Yeah. And like that's, you know, Ireland has adopted the four E's, same as in England and Wales all along and actually done so relatively well now young people are perhaps the group that have expressed you know more discontent than anyone else but by and large the feeling has been that the guards have managed to maintain you know the forays and a positive relationship and they were really strong at the outset that this you can't police your way out of a public health situation um and that they're just to support um a health situation but as you say once you start bringing a public order mindset to that situation, that's where all those problems of legitimacy start to emerge. And I assume, like, not only have you created illegitimacy in that moment, but for the next time, you've amplified the overarching sense of illegitimacy that these young people are feeling. Yeah, and you also create um, an ongoing context where um, people begin to interpret the gathering together as an assertion of their rights, mm. which means that any attempt to try to engage with that becomes more problematic mm. um, moving forward. So, you know, it, it, this is um, a, a really challenging situation. Because of the pandemic. 
and neglects the judgment of public assembly that pandemics uh, invoke. I mean, let's be clear that in the UK, for example, um, I'm sure many uh, of your listeners will have heard about the incidents on Clapham Common, mm-hmm. where Sarah Everard was was murdered by a serving police officer. And then the vigil that grew up to uh, recognise that death uh, again, sort of transcend, transcended into, into conflict and, and, and flowed out into widespread accusations of police illegitimacy. Now, what we would argue, I would certainly argue that the events in London on that weekend flowed directly into Bristol the following weekend. Mm. And that's why we had the riot. So even when you're policing in this context, has to be recognised that policing in one location can have implications for somewhere else. Mm. So what young people may believe is happening in Dublin may flow out into other cities on other weekends where there starts to become um, an entrenched level of conflict between people and and police officers, even though none of those are actually involved in the the event in question. So it's really important that we get this right. Uh, One of the most important things that needs to be done here is proper recognition of what the underlying dynamics are Mm. and get rid of this idea that it's just about mob psychology, it's just about troublemakers, it's nothing of the sort. It's far more complex than that. And if society wants to get to grips with that complexity, the first thing it needs to do is use the right theoretical framework. Well, Clifford Strach, um, Professor Keele University, thank you so much. I think that's, it's really, it's, I'm dying to get this out because I just want people to hear this and to realise that we have to set the moralising aside, engage with those underlying factors and recognise like how the police response can exacerbate um, a situation when it could alternatively de-escalate a situation um, and that these are there are different ways that the police can engage which will have different outcomes and it's just about as you say finding the right approach for the police so I'm really really grateful to you for joining us today um, thank you so much it's a pleasure um, and just um, yeah I Thanks to Tony Gross for producing this and to you, the listeners. If you're already subscribed, you're awesome and we really appreciate your support. If you haven't, please consider doing so. Patreon.com forward slash Tortoiseshack. And if you can't afford to, then just spread the word, retreat and recommend to your friends. 